Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And since this is the uh, the Halloween uh, season and we're talking about creepy, uncanny, scary, frightening, uh, sonic experiences. Uh, Let's kick this episode off with just a little bit of uh, the uncanny from uh, the weirding module. We should talk about this weirding module. Yes, yeah. Just, uh, yeah, real quick. This, uh, the weirding module, this is a solo project from musician Christopher Gladwin. Uh, some of you may know him as one half of Team Doyobi. And a uh, very accomplished uh, musician, has hands in a, a number of different projects. But this one is all about uh, the uncanny, about uh, at times the frightening, the unsettling. Uh, this particular track was titled uh, Chapter One, Abysmal Cathedrals Arise from Melfluria's Icor from Sunless Regions. And uh, Right there, that gives you a clue. Yeah, it gives you a clue. <laughs> and uh, and you, if you recognize the tune, and that's because uh, he's utilizing uh, Symphony Fantastique from uh, Hector Berlioz. And uh, you may also recognize it because uh, Wendy Carlos used it in the theme to The Shining. Ah, so what we are introducing to you guys today is this idea that a scary movie could perhaps be less scary, or not even scary, without the sort of soundtrack that goes along with it, really amping up our experiences while we're watching something on the screen. And when you listen to something uh, like the Weirding Module, you can already start to sense that dis-ease, that, that sort of decentering that that music makes you feel with some of the chords and some of the ways that it's arranged. Yeah, so it it raises the question, and this is the question we're going to explore in this episode, to what extent is there something just innately creepy, uncanny, scary, frightening about music like this? Mm-hmm. Or is it all cultural? Is it all contextual? So we're going to unravel that. But but first, um, just to, to, to rehash, we did an episode a while back called Music on the Brain, where we talked about the various ways that, that music uh, speaks to us on a conscious and subconscious level. Uh, and we have to think about music itself. What is music? You know, it's obviously it's a deep part of our cognitive architecture. It changes our mood. It heightens our emotions. Uh, and we've yet to find a culture that didn't or doesn't have it. And uh, some evidence even suggests that the Neanderthals, in absence of language, mm-hmm. may have used music as a means of uh, communication. Um, indeed, there are also parts of the brain that respond to music that don't respond to language. Separate parts of the brain that respond to the melody of language differ from the parts that respond to the melody of music. So... Music is really kind of this uncanny thing in and of itself. Yeah, I like to bring up cognitive psychologist and linguist Steven Pinker because he's the guy who, he's pretty pretty brilliant guy, but he did say music is just auditory cheesecake, <laughs> an accident of evolution. But when we look at music a little bit deeper, then we really begin to see that the case that was made in the documentary The Music Instinct with Bobby McFerrin, that music actually may be a precursor to language, as you had said, um, is there. Because you think about music, and there's no one music center in our brains. And mm-hmm. as you had said, there, it, music uses certain parts of our brain that language doesn't. Um, one of the parts that music recruits, and I think this is so interesting, is the visual cortex. And it's thought that 
that the visual cortex actually maps a visual of how the pitch and tone are changing. And in turn, music moves us, literally moves us. We, we dance to it because we envision the movement in it. So keep that in mind as we continue to talk a little bit more about music and how it manipulates us, um, and particularly spooky music, how that might motivate yeah. us. The manipulation is key here because uh, when, when music psychologists talk about music and emotion, they uh, often distinguish between emotion perception, mm-hmm. which refers to the perception of emotions expressed by the music. Like, oh, uh, um, uh, the the boss is singing about some sort of sad working class uh, story and run in with the law. That's a sad story. The song is sad. I'm interpreting the sadness of it. But when you then, say the boss, you're talking about Bruce Springsteen. Of course, Springsteen, yeah, of course, yes. Yeah. He's still the boss. I don't. I don't think he's that. That position has has not been vacated yet. Yep. Uh, and then there, but then there's emotion induction, and this refers to the listener's effective response to the music. What I think is interesting about this, it's not just the emotional arousal, it's that we actually will show a physical demonstration of that emotion. And there was a 2009 study of 26 people who, uh, it turns out, bore a strong correlation between subjective emotional response and objective physical response to music. The paper is called The Rewarding Aspects of Music Listening Are Related to a Degree of Emotional Arousal. And it details the chills that someone can feel when they're listening to something. Yeah, goosebumps, goose flesh, uh, whatever you want to call it. And have you, do you yourself experience this when you listen to any music? Um, I, I think the, the, the one that comes to mind is um, Sinner Man by Nina Simone. And I'm talking about the live version. It's like a 10-minute long song. It is... How's that go? Awesome man. <laughs> Actually, you don't want me to do that because I would do that for 10 minutes and it would be insane. But if you listen to that piece of music, you're, it's a rollicking ride of emotions and the piano just gets crazy at some points and it's a, it's a very emotional song. And there's um, a lot of syncopated rhythm with the clapping, which kind of is a stand-in for the percussion in it. Oh, very nice. Well, well I was trying to think of songs that, that have the similar effect on me. And uh, for my own part, uh, Radiohead's Everything in Its Right Place. Every time I, I listen to that, particularly just the first uh, few seconds of it, mm-hmm. when with this kind of uh, uh, cascade of notes sort of uh, finding synchronicity, like that always gives me chill bumps. Again, I think it's, you say cascading and there's that movement. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. the movement of the music and, and my body moves with it and I just get the, get the chills every time. These 26 people who underwent this experiment, well, machines measured their heart rate, respiration rate, body temperature, and galvanic skin response. This is how much basically they were sweating in response to the music. And their blood volume pulse. And uh, they were asked to click a button every time that they felt really aroused. And so number four, the the four clicking button was the button that correlated with chills. And so they found that 80% of the chills occurred at the highest moment of pleasure reported. So I think that's interesting that it's a pleasurable response and yet chills is the expression of the body. Yeah, you're you're intensely satisfied by the music, but it's giving giving you chills. Um, and there was another study we looked at here from neurologist Jack Panksip of Bowling Green State University. This one's interesting because he found that people uh, listening to music often experience goosebumps because of sad feelings, uh, more so than happy or excited emotions. Uh, but a lot of this came down to um, melancholy associations with the past, uh, okay. uh, which which is kind of like you know getting into the context issue of all of this. For instance, that song that you listen to a hundred times in a row during a breakup, you listen to it ten years later. You don't care the least bit about that individual, mm-hmm. but that music can still stir something. And there's a bit of nostalgia in that as well. You know, it, it 
sort of sucks you back a little bit into that emotional state. Wasn't the idea behind that is that the listener is feeling nostalgic or sad because they, and having goosebumps as a response because they physically are missing the warmth of that person? Yes. The uh, researcher argues that uh, music-induced chills are tied into the chemicals released in our brain to deal with social loss. So the idea is that uh, our ancient ancestors might have experienced this if they were separated from a family member. All right, You, you wander off, uh, and then the, the cries you hear in the air of the, of, of, uh, the lost family members, that that will cause a chill inside you and cause you to have this desire to reach out to the warmth of others. And I thought it was interesting that this was the response that these chill bumps, even uh, for someone who would be singing or listening to the Star Spangled Banner. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, that's a little bit odd. But when you and a little cheesy, no, oh, it's fine, it's fine. It, well, yeah. it's nice, it's nice. But if you peel that back a little bit, then you can say, oh, okay, well, what is it to be to to be moved by that song? You feel united with your countrymen and countrywomen. Yeah. So in a sense there, there's that community-based longing. Well, it's like with, with with so many issues we've discussed, you can find this sort of core of like ancestral animal organism sense to mm-hmm. what happens, but then you pile enough layers of uh, human complexity and human cognition, and it just turns it into a maze. Yeah, and just to further compound the, the maze, too, of course, we're going to have to look back at the brain, because I want to look at the amygdala for a moment, uh, in particular when we talk about scary music, because the amygdala, as we know, processes emotion, memory, fear. And to test out the theory that certain strains of music can ramp up or dial down the fear response, researchers in Oxford, England, played different kinds of music for people who, whose amygdalas had been removed because of an illness or an accident. And then people without this part of the brain actually had trouble recognizing scary music, whereas people with their amygdalas Mm. intact had a a definite response when scary music was played, as shown by the brain scanners. So, again, there's an idea that there's so many different parts of your brain that are weighing in on the notes that you hear. Now, I know what a number of you are probably wondering. Well, to what extent is it contextual? Is it cultural? Um, for instance, the, the music we heard at the top of the uh, the, the program. Um, a, it's by an, an act known as the Weirding Module. So some of you would, if you hear that, you interpret the, this uh, kind of uh, strange-sounding name. You're bringing that into the game. Or you're recognizing uh, the piece of music sampled in the work as, uh, as uh, being familiar to something in The Shining. We're bringing all this context. We're bringing all this culture. And so, of course, we interpret it as creepy. So if you were to play creepy music for someone who had zero experience with any of that, would they still find it scary? Uh, you were talking about the study of the Mafa people in Cameroon who had never, ever heard any sort of strains of Western music. And they were introduced to three Western musical clips, one that is typically thought to be sad, one that's happy, and one that's spooky. All three examples, by the way, sound like something that would play during uh, like a... Um, an old silent film that would be played on the piano, you know? Like yeah, they're the, very the villains classic. tying somebody to the railroad tracks kind of a thing. Uh, yeah, right, and the music speeds up. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, these uh, Cameroonians were also shown something called Ekman faces. And these Ekman faces are photos of standardized expressions of emotions. So in this case, they had a happy, sad, and scared face to look at while they listen to the music. And just like Westerners, the Cameroonians correlated the music type with the same facial expressions. So that would tell you that there's some universality to it. Now, that's not... There are other studies that say 
know the second there you know some that negate this because there are mm-hmm. other cultures that might hear certain notes and interpret in different ways yeah when you get in deep into say the differences between eastern and western music yes. uh, trends in middle eastern music versus western music then things get a little more complicated well i was just thinking about chinese opera which the the um tones in the chinese opera might sound very um harsh or dissonant to the western ear yes. but very pleasant to uh, Eastern ear. Yeah, there's a fabulous, I think, NPR piece in the past year about uh, Western, a Western musician, a Western opera singer, uh, traveling to China and engaging in Chinese opera and sort of dealing with the the, the, the contrast between Western opera and Chinese opera, mm-hmm. between some of the overlap of the performers, and uh, it's it's interesting because they are such different animals. Well, in, even in language, and Allison and I had kind of talked about this a little bit, there's a musicality to language. Mm-hmm. And if you look at something like Vietnamese, one word can be said in uh, five different tones and mean five entirely different things. Yeah, so sim- similar thing in Mandarin, yeah. Yeah, so it's much more nuanced, uh, and it has to be taken into account. Uh, but Christopher Gladwin, uh, the man behind the weirding module, had some very interesting thoughts on this universality. Yeah, I was exchanging some emails uh, uh, with Chris, and he had a lot of great info to, to share. And uh, sadly, between the two of us, we didn't have time to do an audio interview, but I'll uh, hopefully be sharing some stuff on the blog uh, from him in the uh, the weeks ahead. He said, quote, There are sounds which almost universally cause revulsion or fight-or-flight responses. The sound of vomiting came out as the most obnoxious auditory experience in a worldwide Internet survey conducted by Professor Trevor Cox. The reason for this uh, is that we're it's hardwired to our biology. Avoid those that are disgorging the contents of their stomachs unless you want the same to happen to you. (laughs) Other sounds that came out on top were babies crying and nails down at blackboard. Both of these sounds have relatively complex high-frequency tones that we are evolutionarily designed to respond to. Having a year-old daughter, I can appreciate this. Many industrial bands have used such uh, casual tactics, throbbing gristle and their use of uh, recordings of dogs attacking a dummy. Uh, Etc. And, and he goes on to uh, to, to discuss this in, in further depth, and I will uh, hopefully share that with everyone uh, later on. But but yeah, there are certain things that just as an organism mm-hmm. we uh, feel this either disgust with or yeah. this aversion to, or it just sets off all our alarms. I mean, the the baby crying, I, I too am experiencing that one with the uh, the toddler that uh, my wife and I have uh, have adopted. Uh, he will um, he'll start. You know, crying or tuning up a little bit in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. and it just has this intense effect on me uh, to where I, even after I I put him back to sleep, mm-hmm. my heart's just still beating like crazy, like it's just it's reaching behind my brain and uh, and you know grabbing hold of the reptilian uh, portion there. Right now, is your cat biscuit mimicking the the cries yes. of a newborn? Yeah, well, you know, there's that argument that that's what cats are doing anyway, and they're mm-hmm. they're perverse means of manipulating their humans. And so, yeah, it will have, there'll be situations where the, the child is authentically crying and then the cat is also crying and it's mock human voice. And it's, it's uh, you know what this is like. This yes. is frustrating. It becomes a loud household at 3 a.m. Yes. Yeah. Um, Christopher Gladwin also mentions there was a sound that he found difficult to describe. Michael Gira of the Swans, he said, put it best, that sex death sound that comes from somewhere deep inside there are some experiences of sound that you just get that. <laughs> you try to spell it out. 
that's the best I can do, feeling from and some sort of possession occurs. I believe that this connects with some subterranean evolutionary memory, something in our ancestral reptilian fish brain. We still have vestigial fish ears, you know? And I thought, you know what? (laughs) That sound, I, let me tell you this, and I'm going to give you the context. It was not a sexual context, so you don't have to put your hands up to your ears and say, no, 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 no. Okay. I did something called the seven minute workout. Do you know about this? No. It is awful. It is like this ramped up, high density, crazy workout you do for seven minutes at just the the best and highest rate that you can. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I heard these noises coming out of of myself that I was <laughs> a little bit shamed of. Uh, I felt a little bit uh, like freaked out that they were actually coming out. But I understand what he's saying. There's a guttural, like, "Oh my God, I'm dying inside," noise that I had never heard come out of myself before, and so. There is something to that, this evolutionary, like, oh, there's something wrong. Yeah, um, an example of that, I was um, driving my my child around uh, in the middle of the night, trying to get him to sleep immediately after returning home, and he was super jet-lagged, and I was jet-lagged. And uh, so I was listening to Radio Lab, catching up on some Radio Lab ish- uh, episodes. And there's an excellent one they did recently on rabies. Mm-hmm. And in that uh, episode, they play some audio of humans who have rabies and are experiencing that rage and that just, you know, the, the, the mindless rage that is associated with the later stages of rabies. And it was extremely unsettling to hear those sounds. Like, and, and it's, and I wonder to what extent it's kind of cross over to that. This, this idea that that, that is on some level human, but it must be bodily possession by some outside force that is making that kind of noise. And you're right, that bodily possession, mm-hmm. as if you are outside of yourself or something was outside of itself. All right, uh, we should probably take a quick break. And when we get back, we, you and I, Robert Lamb, are going to actually sing some of the strains of music classics, not because we necessarily want to do that to your ears, but because we have no budget. Correct. All right, so stand by. All right, we're back. Robert, did you know that in the original cut of Psycho, that Hitchcock did not want those high-pitched violin screams to accompany the shower scene? You mean famous that? Iconic- <laughs> Sorry about that. See, again, we have no budget, so that's what yeah. you guys are getting. Um, it was actually his wife... Uh, Alma Revel, who was a scriptwriter and actually a director of, of her um, own right, and an editor who said, no, 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 you need to check out Bernard Herrmann's score that he's created for this. It's amazing. It's going to do its thing. And they actually tested two versions, one with the, with the violins and one without. And apparently when they uh, showed the audience one without, they were a little like, eh. Okay, yeah. so this this woman's getting hacked to death in a shower. But when they accompanied the violin strains of Bernard Herrmann, people freaked out. Huh. It's, it's interesting to think of, uh, having not seen the scene without the music, I mean, it's hard to imagine, because it's such an iconic scene, and the yeah. two go together so well. And when I imagine the scene in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, that's a really horrific scene, you know? Even yeah. even though it it doesn't show as much um, in way in the way of nudity or... Bloodshed that mm-hmm. you might, you know, that I'm sure you can get away with today. Uh, it's so effective and so disturbing, and yet the music is what seems to make it so effective. Like in, in a sense, we can't feel or even imagine what those the stabs feel like physically, yeah. Because most of us have not been brutally stabbed with a butcher knife before, but the music kind of fills that place. 
It's interesting that you say that it's it's not that much nudity and it's not that much violence because then then what you thought because a lot of people when they when they ask people you know about that scene they tend to envision much more violence and nudity than there actually is because of that heightened emotionality there I yeah. think um, and of course it's that high pitched sound and we'll get a little bit more into that in terms of the animal world um, but I wanted to mention that in terms of pitch Daniel Blumstein. Uh, he scrutinized 102 films and found that horror films had a higher than expected number of abrupt shifts up and down in pitch, which he reported in the Royal Society Journal Biology Letters. So already you can see that there are very different ways that um, that filmmakers